0: first John so if you want to turn there to first John chapter 2 and uh, we read the portion this morning we we're only this morning looking at three verses verses 12 through 14 as in the past we have been going through the epistle of John and we have uh, seen that John wrote this epistle addressed to the church that had been confronted by false teachers who were causing quite a bit of problems and difficulties. So the epistle is written now. The old apostle in his old age, the probably late 80s, early 90s, writing to help assure the congregation and to help root out The false teachings of those who have come and sown falsehood among the truth. And the passage that we come to this morning is a passage of uh, reassurance, and also of uh, letting us see what our spiritual growth should be in terms of our walk with the Lord. So let's go ahead and read beginning in verse 12. We'll just read through 14. John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you will oversee everything that is said and help our hearts to take the truth of your word and apply it to our lives so that we may be transformed more and more. Into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's our desire. It's our prayer. And we commit this time to you in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So, as we said, there are certain false teachers who have been disturbing the congregation to whom the Apostle John is writing. And John, in his epistle, has a, a twofold. Purpose One is to confront the false teaching, and he's concerned that those who are not Christians, but who think they are, would not be falsely assured of their salvation. False teaching to those who are not grounded in the truth may draw them away into false assurance. Of our salvation. On the other hand, John desires to give the true Christians in their congregations a fuller understanding and of their experience and assurance of salvation. So he wants those two. And we know that because in the epistle, John himself writes a verse which is a purpose statement in chapter 5 and verse 13 where he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So you see, expressly stating here towards the end of the epistle everything that he has written, is written there with the purpose for those who believe in the Son of God, those who have repented and come to him in salvation may know that they have eternal life. So his purpose is to assure the Christians. And so throughout the epistle, John presents some tests of assurance. And so following the exhortation of the apostle Paul to cause us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, John provides these tests throughout the epistle, which are helpful for the Christian to examine ourselves, where we are. His purpose in writing is as much to confirm the right assurance of genuine Christians as to rob the counterfeit of their false assurance. Now, that's a hard thing to do at the same time. So the passage that we are coming to this morning is actually sort of a parenthesis if you notice, when we read the passage, the full passage this morning, you notice that immediately before these verses, John has uh, presented the test of uh, brotherly love and exhorting us to express that love as an evidence of the love of God in us. And immediately following is a passage where he talks about another love, but a love that we should not have, which is the love for the world. And you'll see it's another test that he presents. But in the middle of them, We have these verses we're looking at this morning with sort of a a parenthesis. It's uh, in which John then pauses as he recognizes that even as he confronts the false salvation of those who are false Christians, it can have the effect of a true Christian becoming insecure or uncertain about the state of their own hearts. Someone who's specially sensitive or someone... May have doubts as he looks at these tests that John is presenting, and therefore have doubts. And he recognizes that even as he confronts these teachers, he uh, those that are insecure or uncertain about the state of their own hearts or salvation. So he pauses here in these verses, twelve to fourteen, to give an important word of assurance, a word of encouragement to the faithful believers of his congregation. And of course, because John is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his words are not only applicable to that congregation at that time, but to all Christians, including us. And so they'll be profitable for us. John has just concluded his exposition of his second test of loving brethren and, and following, he present the test of not loving the world, as mentioned. He doesn't mean, though, to give his readers the impression that he thinks that they are in darkness, or that he doubts the reality of their Christian faith. It is the false teachers whom he regards as counterfeit, not the faithful members of the church. So then he takes this, we can call a digression from he's presenting to tell them his view of their Christian standing. And so John makes here six statements, you've noticed them, six statements about those he's writing to. Introducing each with the words, I am writing to you, or I have written to you. Now the translations vary a little bit if you have the ESV or NIV, the second three statements instead of I have written to you, say I write to you. But it's basically, the, the sense does not change the intent of what he is writing here. And so, it's interesting because, in, because of the some of the nuances of the mechanics of the structure of these verses, commentators spend quite a bit of time in discussion as to the mechanics of the way in which John puts this uh, survey of Christian doctrine in these verses and they talk about the verb tenses, they differ the first three statements from the second three statements, but uh, the variation is not very significant, but also they speak and discuss uh, little children and children, the two words different used by John in the 12th verse and at the end of the 13th verse um, even discuss um, how the statements are arranged and Back and forth, and the uh, different verb tenses, etc. And um, as a matter of fact, as an example, one of the commentators states that what happened uh, between verses, uh, the middle of verse 13, where there's a change in the in the in the verb tense from "I'm writing to you" to "I have written to you," is that he was interrupted in the middle of writing this, so then he had to leave, and when he came back, he resumed writing but changed the verb tense. And that, well. Obviously, that's conjecture, and all well, that really is not very helpful. So, they're interesting discussions, but I think that I agree with uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones when he states regarding this that, uh, regarding these discussions, that it does not matter because what really matters is that clearly the apostle is telling us that these truths of the Christian life and of the Christian faith must be understood. By all, so John writes for all Christians, but at the same time, there are steps and stages in the in this Christian life and If you notice John here divides his readers into three groups whom he names children, fathers, and young men, and addresses each group twice he 's indicating. Of course, here, not their physical ages, but stages in the spiritual development or spiritual growth. For God's family, like every human family, has members of different maturity. Now, I just want to clarify something, of course. The fact that he's referring to young men, spiritual young men, and, uh, and fathers does not simply exclude women. This is simply an analogy he's using, and the expression, of course, is inclusive. Of all, so John discusses here different stages of spiritual growth in the believer. As we consider this subject of spiritual maturity or spiritual growth, which is in reality this, the believer's progressive sanctification, we refer to it as progressive sanctification, goes to progressive aspect throughout our lives in which we are being progressively sanctified. We are growing maturing in the faith. So we need to consider some things that can be wrongly characterized regarding this subject before we actually go to the verses. Now, Pastor John MacArthur has made excellent statements regarding this, which I would like to just mention. In discussing spiritual growth, he says it's important to address several misconceptions when we're thinking of what spiritual growth is. And these must be carefully avoided. And so he lists some of First, spiritual growth does not determine the believer's standing, his standing in grace before God. That issue is finally and completely settled when sinners trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and have his righteousness imputed to them. And, of course, John has already talked about this earlier. At the moment of conversion, Christ's own sacrifice for sin is applied to the believing sinner and his own righteousness credited to the penitent so that God's wrath is turned away. All sin is paid for and pardoned, and the believer is accepted by God and Christ Jesus. And so the resultant standing is fixed and irrevocable and not, and it settles forever the believer's heavenly destiny. So the spiritual growth does not determine the believer standing before God. Secondly, spiritual growth does not affect God's love for the believer. We are not loved more or loved less by God, depending on where our maturity is. He doesn't love the mature saint more than the less mature. And the reason for this is that his love is not based on the individual merit of any person. None of us have earned God's love in any way. He has lavished his love upon us merely of his own grace and mercy. Romans 5 eight states, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ loves all the elect perfectly. If you remember, even on the night before the crucifixion, the apostles demonstrated immaturity and pride. Remember, they were arguing about what, about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And the Lord, who was already in the loon shadow of the cross, present there, still says, John writes in the gospel that even in this worst behavior, the Lord continued to love them to the end—that is, to perfection or to the maximum of His love. His love was not dependent on their actions or the level of maturity. Third, spiritual growth—growth—is not measured by the calendar. It is not strictly measured by the calendar by time people who have been believers for many years may be less mature than others who have been believers for a much shorter time. Now this may be the result of inadequate study or instruction of the Word of God, or it may be the result of fleshly disobedience and unfaithful application of sound teaching. Fourth, spiritual growth is unrelated to the amount of theological information That the believer knows. Some Christians have an adequate or even exceptional amount of biblical and theological knowledge and yet are immature spiritually. And that, by the way, is a dangerous position to be in because the more biblical knowledge that you have but don't apply, the more deceived the person becomes about his own spiritual condition. Constant disobedience produces indifference in a subdued conscience and in stunting spiritual growth. So it is a dangerous condition to be in. Fifth, spiritual growth has nothing to do with outward successful ministry activity. There are some that are very busy in the church but unskilled in the truth and immature in the wisdom that comes from above as James speaks about in chapter 3. Now, great temporal success or a high level of influence or heading a large organization or generating much financial support for Christian organizations, it's not an indicator of genuine spiritual maturity. In fact, sometimes the opposite is true. Remember for Paul, Weakness, suffering, persecution, and poverty were the true signs of his maturity in the Lord. As he expresses when he's writing to the Corinthians that we've been studying recently in our Sunday school. Finally, spiritual growth is not mystical. It's not sentimental or psychological. It doesn't stem from a once-for-all act of spiritual rededication a religious decision, or an emotional experience that produces you know, good feelings. Rather, it's as physical growth results from the process of taking food regularly, so spiritual growth results from the process of taking in God's truth. But not only taking it in, believing it and applying it. The Lord self Responding to Satan, Satan's temptation, quoted Moses from Deuteronomy when he said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but in every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Paul's letters define spiritual growth in several ways. It speaks of spiritual growth as being transformed by the renewing of your mind. In chapter 12 of Romans, verse 2. Speaks of spiritual growth as perfecting holiness in the fear of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Speaks of spiritual growth and maturing as pressing on toward the goal. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7. As being built up in him and established in your faith. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11. Pursuing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And remember the well known verse in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2 where he said, For the believer to long for the pure milk of the word so that by you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, as we look at verse 12, Stays, states, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, Joel, John points in the very first place here, as he's referring, by the way, children, is referring to all of the congregation. He refers to God's forgiveness. It's an interesting starting point, isn't it? Christians are forgiven people. We all are. We have been forgiven of our sins. And he says this very objective prepos- pre- uh, statement. And that work of God and forgiveness is the ground of our assurance. And it's something, if you notice, that it's something outside of us. So the ground for our assurance here is not something in us, but it's something outside of us. He writes to those true believers and calls them little children. Now, when he says little children, verse 12, he was talking about all believers. So he's saying, I'm writing to all of you who are the children of God. And it's it's a common biblical expression for the saved, the children of God. And one thing is true of all of you. He says, your sins are forgiven you. You've all been forgiven it's not about your standing before God. That has been fixed. So as we've said, spiritual growth is not about God's loving us, more or less. You're already fully loved so that your sins are forgiven because Christ has paid in full the penalty of all our sins. Isn't it? So, one thing is true of all believers, wherever they are in the spiritual growth stage, whether a child or a young man or a father, we have all been forgiven. So, it's not about uh, where people are standing before God, that has been settled. And this is the great reality of our salvation—the forgiveness of sins. Listen to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven: "In Him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us." What a wonderful expression! That the riches of His grace has been lavished upon us. He lavishes grace in complete forgiveness to everyone who has truly repented and believed in him in ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 it says be kind one to another tender hearted forgiving each other just as god in christ also has forgiven you the basis for us to be forgiven others is the fact that in christ we have been forgiven God has lavished his grace upon us in an overabundant way, an overflowing way in his forgiveness of our sins. So forgiveness is at the heart of our salvation. Even back in in chapter 1 of of the same epistle of John, in verse 7, he said, If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us, from all sin, and then in chapter three of the same epistle, John in verse five says, "You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. That's why he came to take away sins." Now, Scripture is filled with these statements that salvation is the forgiveness of sins. In in Acts chapter ten and verse forty-three, remember in that event that Peter was at Cornelius' house and he's speaking. Preaching the good news to the Gentiles, and he said of Jesus Christ, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what salvation is the forgiveness of sins. Now in Acts 13 and verse 38, Paul states, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him that is Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now this all things that he's referring to means the just punishment of holy God because we could not, through the law, be freed from our sins. Only through Christ is forgiveness of sins proclaimed. In Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, the Lord, after his resurrection, appears to the disciples and he said to them, So it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. So the proclamation that goes out to all the nations by his disciples according to his command is to proclaim the repentance for forgiveness of sins in Christ. Now as we go back to 1 John, so John here is pointing to us to an objective ground for an assurance. For our assurance. Now notice the fact that he points to God's work of forgiveness not to something in us. So as he's seeking to reassure believers who may be weakening or may be doubting, he reassures them in in God's work of forgiveness. John is pointing us away from those subjective evidence to God's work in our lives to something objective, something that's outside of us, something that God does, not that we do and that is the forgiveness of sins. And then, of course, he adds this very important phrase, for his name's sake. Now, God pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, not for anything in us, but all for the sake of the righteous Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are forgiven because of Christ. We're forgiven because of God's mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. Not because we're worthy, not because we deserve it, not because we somehow merit it, but for his name's sake. The basis of our forgiveness, as we said, is God acting, not something in us. And so the assurance of our forgiveness is outside of us and it's in what God has done. So that assurance is faithful. Anchored in who God is and what He has done, and so He points us to this: we are forgiven, and we forgiven for, for because of what Christ has done as the basis for our salvation. Now He forgave us because of the person and work of Christ, the sinless Savior, the Messiah, who lived a life of perfect obedience to the law in our place, that which we could not do. And so dying the death on the cross in which our penalty was given to him and his righteousness was imputed to us. And so this is the basis for our salvation and hence this is the basis for our assurance. And it's an unshakable assurance, isn't it? For his name's sake. That simply means for his glory. It is to the glory of God that he forgive our sins. That's absolutely the reason for everything, isn't it? Everything God does, he does for his glory. Including all of his redemptive work. It's all for his glory. Psalm 25:11 says, says, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. Not for my sake, but for the sake of the glory of your grace, so that you can put your glory on display. In Psalm 106, verse 8, it says the Lord saved Israel. It says the reason he saved them for the, is for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. For my own sake I will act, God says. It brings glory to God to forgive sinners. We are forgiven not because we merit. We are forgiven not because we earn it. We are forgiven not because there's something in us worth forgiving. We are forgiven because it gives testimony. It gives testimony to the grace of God to do that. So when John says, I'm writing to you, all you Christians, because you all have been forgiven, it's not by anything we've done or deserve but it's because it pleases God to put on display the wonder and the glory of his grace. When it says His namesake, of course the term the name simply implies or means all that he is. The Lord said in the Old Testament, my name is, he said to Moses, I am that I am. God forgives us because it pleases him to display the glory of his forgiveness and it's in his name implying all that he is. So John here is saying, "You, I'm not questioning whether you're Christians. I know you're children of God. I know you've been forgiven. I know you don't feel worthy, but it's been done so that God's glory can be displayed. Now it's stating saying that you're all in the family but we have to realize that then there are degrees of maturity. So if you feel like you're way down at the beginning or you're a spiritual baby, don't think for a moment that you're not a Christian. Just because you aren't where you should be in the spiritual process, don't deny the reality of what the Lord has done in your life for his namesake. And we're not talking about, of course, absolute perfection here. We're talking about direction of life of spiritual progress. And so there are categories here that John puts forth. I see we look at this, this the statement in these verses. And there are categories of spiritual growth in verses 13 and 14. He goes on, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Then I'm writing to you young man, because you've overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So we see here the presentation of different categories. Now, you know John has a, a different way of presenting things than the apostle Paul does Paul is more, much more meticulous much more systematic and John as we look even through the epistle of first John if you he kind of has a way of repeating things and going about in a way that's not specifically organized as Paul would but so in typical Johnian fashion there's repetition here we don't know what John's motive was in repeating these things but as a teacher Probably repetition, of course, makes an emphasis crystal clear. I'm repeating this thing so make sure you get it. I want you to understand this, so I'm going to repeat it. And I'm going to remind you what I just said. This is for the sake of emphasis, probably. He wants to embed this in our minds. And this is very encouraging. We're writing that you might know you're saved, he's saying. We're writing that you might affirm that you are a child of God with forgiven sins. But we also want to recognize that there are levels of spiritual growth. And so he defines the, the reality that though you're not a spiritual father or even a spiritual young man, you're still a child who's been forgiven. So there's a great measure of grace here. And as we look at these categories... First of all, we need to understand that there are spiritual children. Just because you've been a Christian a long time does not mean you're not a spiritual child. Now, all spiritual babies do not become spiritual young men. They don't become spiritual fathers. They, We all should, but not all do. We should all grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 states that they should grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that, as believers, that is our goal, that is our desire, that is our calling, is to grow in our spiritual stature, to mature spiritually. We should feed on the word of God and grow by it, as Peter wrote. But unfortunately, not all do. At any given point in time, even those who will grow are so new in the faith that they haven't started to really develop yet. So there's these categories here. And um, it's encouraging to us in our progress as we examine what John is saying here. We have to start with a little chill. Then in verse 13, he again addresses... The children, at the, towards the end of the verse, where he says, I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. So there's another statement of description here, these children. The distinguishing act in a, of a child in Christ is to acknowledge God as Father. The child expressed the delight in the attachment to the Father. They expressed the delight in the new life, and the joy of dependence, as in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, the spiritual babe says, Abba, Father. That's an expression like Daddy. It's an expression of intimacy, an expression of dependence, an expression of appreci- appreciating the closeness, and the <laughs> presence of the Father. There's a newness of life. There's a wondrous intimacy and familiarity. A personal relationship with God is expressed there. Now, little children are more regulated by their affections than by knowledge, though, right? They're more affected by their emotions, their feelings, than by information or knowledge. Now, in this expression, there's a joy there, that the expression that God is my Father, Christ is, Christ is my Savior, God is my Protected protector, he cares for me, he meets my needs, he's provided a home for me, he's provided everything I need, so there's special intimate affection for God. There's a delight in the spiritual life, a delight in the spiritual experiences, and a joy that their sins have been forgiven. But spiritual babies are attached to the relationship more than to doctrine. So it describes an immaturity even though there's this wonderful dependent attachment to the relationship but not so much in terms of knowledge. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 the apostle Paul says look here's how I know your babies because one says I'm of Paul and one says I'm of Paulus. They're more drawn by their affections than by their knowledge. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14 states uh, something that's true about spiritual trilling. that's a warning to us all. It says, Be no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There's another thing about children. They're affectionate and they're drawn to relationships, but they have no discernment. And they will be easily led astray. It's the nature of a child to be easily deceived and to be easily led led astray. And there's also a lack of wisdom there, isn't it? There's a lack of discernment. And spiritual children live in danger of being led seriously astray. False teachers prey on spiritual babies. We see a second category then as he refers to the young men in verse 13. It says, I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. And then he adds in verse 14, I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. So this different category now goes from the relationship more to the knowledge. And that of course doesn't exclude that as we're looking, these are progressive stages of relationship, isn't it? Progressive stages of, of growth. But in this stage, then we have here and they have the knowledge, the, the theology, the doctrine. This goes from the attachment that is purely mostly emotional to the attachment that is a matter of affection to the doctrinal issue. And it's a beautiful analogy. He says, I'm writing to you, young men." spiritual young man because you have overcome the evil one so how did they overcome the evil one verse 14 states because you are strong so how do they get strong because the word of God abides in you and that's how you overcome the evil one in fact John says you're strong because the word of God abides in you that's the secret of the strength they are strong because the word of God abides in them and because the word of God abides in them, they have overcome the wicked one, the evil one. So what's a characteristic of a spiritual young man? Somebody who knows the word of God. The word of God abides in them. They know what the Bible teaches. They're equipped with spiritual knowledge. The characteristic of children, which is ignorance, but the characteristic of the young man is knowledge. They know the doctrine. They know the word of God abides in them. A spiritual baby is self-absorbed with new feelings, with needs, with problems. Everything is personal. A spiritual young man has outgrown that and looks to the world outside, looks to the truth, and looks to the word of God. The Lord, in its greatest temptation, as we have made the point before already. But remember, he answers Satan by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written three times. It is written, referring to the word. And he appealed to the word of God and the victory was his over Satan. And that's what John concludes in his word to the young man here. Young men Spiritually speaking, are Christians who have acquired knowledge of the truth. They're well established in the area of doctrine. As the spiritual food has gone in, then spiritual strength has resulted. He's already, they already conquered Satan. How could that be? Second Corinthians chapter eleven verses thirteen to fifteen, it says, Satan is disguised as an angel of light. Satan doesn't make us sin we sin because of the flesh but Satan is definitely involved in false teaching definitely involved in false religious systems the word tells us that Satan is a liar and a deceiver and he wa- he works in false systems the false ideologies of the world as we looked in it's second like corinthians that we are fighting against fortresses are spiritual fortresses or false ideologies and satan works through these so we don't blame satan for our sin james one fourteen says that we sin because of the lust of the flesh because we walk in the flesh but Satan is one who proclaims lies, and a spiritual young man can overcome the evil, evil one. Because if you know sound doctrine, you have overcome the evil one. A spiritual young man is not attracted by false doctrine, not easily deceived. So spiritual children delight in the experience of the relationship, but spiritual young men delight in the truth and the fact that they reached the point where they're no longer vulner, vulnerable to being led astray by the false doctrine. But spiritual young men, knowing doctrine, haven't reached the final stage of spiritual development because John adds another uh, level here, another stage. In verse 13, says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And then in verse 14, I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. Now, Two statements repeated, they're both exactly the same. You've gone from experiencing the relationship to knowing the doctrine to becoming a spiritual father. What is that? To know him that is from the beginning. Now this statement, of course, refers to the eternal God, refers to the eternal Christ. This reminds us that Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him. Implied in this statement is the more intimate, mature, complete knowledge of him. In this third stage of spiritual development, it's when you don't just know the doctrine, you know the God who revealed the doctrine in a more complete, intimate, thorough way. You've begun to plumb the depths of the character of God, his attributes, this is when your life becomes an experience of worship continually. This is when it's not just warfare about the doctrine. This is when you get to the point where your soul is simply full and accelerated in the knowledge of God. And in some ways, you're, again, of course, in all these, we're still back to relationship with God. Only it's a fuller and richer and relationship which is fully informed by the doctrine, by the word of God, to know the author of that doctrine, to know the God who's behind it. It's so deeply, intimately knowing God. And this is the path that we all want to be on, isn't it? You're just a baby and all you're doing is celebrating the relationship. That's wonderful, but you're enjoying the experience of the unconditional love, yes, but you're vulnerable to false doctrine. So you need to learn the Word of God, so you can become a spiritual young man, and thus protecting yourself from being led astray by being taken out by every wind of doctrine and carried away by Satan's deceptions. When you get to be in a spiritual young man, you will reach an accelerating point in the spiritual experience but nothing like getting to be a spiritual father where you don't just know the doctor, you know the God who is behind it. So it's not just understanding the letter God gave you, it, it's that you understand the heart of the God who wrote that letter. There's a depth in that that can't be explained, it can only be experienced. And So John says, look, because you're not fully mature, it doesn't mean you're not forgiven. I'm not writing this epistle to cause you to doubt your salvation. I'm writing this epistle to cause you to affirm it, because even a spiritual baby believes in the true Christ. He knows he's a sinner, wants to obey, loves other, hates the world. Again, for all of us, no matter what stage in our spiritual development we are, it's not a matter of perfection. It's, It's a matter of the direction of our lives. And finally, the power in this process, what is the power that moves us along? Of course, as believers, we have been promised that we have the Holy Spirit in us. And it's the Holy Spirit in us through the means of the word that then progresses us in the different stages in our spiritual maturity, in our spiritual growth. But it is important, greatly important, to be thoroughly immersed in the Word of God. Because we're never going to really know the God who wrote the Word until we know what He wrote. There's, so there is an inner relationship, reciprocal relationship, but in that. As we, you go over it and over it and deeper and deeper into the Word of God, then the character of God begins to develop and to grow and expand. We literally live our lives in awe of the wonder of who God is. There's no limit to the depth of God's word. The word is life itself. It's the living word. The word is life-giving. We're begotten again and sanctified by the word. And the word is life-maturing. It is the process by we we mature spiritually. We grow in grace and in the knowledge that the word provides. The word is transforming. Paul states, be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind, and the renewing of that mind is through the Holy Spirit using the word to renew our mind. It is the bread of life by which we grow, we live and grow. And the pursuit of of all of us is to become the spiritual father and the characteristic of the spiritual father is an intimate knowledge of God like the knowledge that Christ has of his own father. In Christ's priestly prayer in John 17, Lord Jesus is praying to the father and in this prayer, he prays for those who are his own. And he says, I've given them your word. I've given them your word, that's what they need. And then he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then the Lord adds, My prayer is that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us. That the world may believe that Thou didst send me, and the glory which Thou has given me, I had given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. You see the Lord's Prayer. That we may be one just as we are, they may be one as we are one. I in them, and Thou in me, and that they may be perfected in unity. That the world may know that Thou didst send me, didst love me, even as Thou didst love me. And then in verse 25, O righteous Father, the world hasn't known you, but I have known you. Similar expression to what the Apostle John is using here. You have known him who is from the beginning. And then the Lord says, in essence, I've I've made your name known to them. So the Lord Jesus Christ In the end, he's saying, I want them to know you the way that I know you. That is his prayer for us. Isn't that wonderful? So as we gaze at the image of Christ, that we literally want to get to a place where we know God in some measure the way Christ knows him. As Christ truly knows him to be who he is. So we as believers, may we come to the mature knowledge of God, Whatever the limitations we may have, we know that God, as much as possible, is the same way that Christ knows him. And in that knowledge comes the essence of worship in our lives. So then we realize that growth isn't just going to happen by just an event or a decision or an experience. It's the consistent, ongoing work of the Word. As the Word is believed, as it's applied, It becomes active in our lives and mature in us more and more into the image of our Savior. Let's pray. Blessed God, our Father, we thank you for these words written long ago by the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as we look at these wonderful statements by the Apostle John, Lord, we ask that you will help each one of us to examine ourselves, examine our stage and our spiritual maturity before you. And help us, Lord, to apply these things that the Apostle John is bringing here. Help us to apply your word in our lives in in a way, not simply just to accumulate knowledge, Lord, but in a way that it be used by the Holy Spirit in us to transform us more and more so that we may come to a fuller and deeper, more intimate knowledge of who you are, who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.